So what does Ayn Rand mean by the primacy of existence? So uh, the primacy of existence is is her name for one of two fundamental orientations in metaphysics. Uh, In other words, there are two, as she sees it, two basic types of metaphysics and, and, and in a way two basic types of philosophy uh, deep down. One view, her view, is that facts in the external world and reality are what they are, regardless of what any conscious being thinks they are or ought to be. And that's called the primacy of existence because existence external reality and its facts, things and their nature and so forth, are what they are. And then subsequently, consciousnesses, conscious beings can become aware of those facts and do things about them. But by being aware, they don't shape their reality. The contrary view is what she calls the primacy of consciousness. Let me give you the sort of more extreme versions to make it sort of clear what it is. So on one version of primacy of consciousness, the first thing that there is is God's mind, a, con- a divine consciousness. And whatever God wants there to be, wills there to be, wishes there to be, thinks would be best to be, comes into existence. Or on social constructivism view or, or various kinds of idealism, our minds or society's concepts and values shape reality and make things the way they are. So that things aren't really fixed um, and observer independent, it's the mind or group minds or collective consciousness or what have you that makes things be the way that they are. And so there are various mixes of the two in between, but in Rand's view, sort of at the extreme of primacy of consciousness is a view that, you know, God God's mind makes everything happen or uh, a kind of idealist view that the entire world is just as we perceive it. It's not really the way we see things, but the way we see things makes it be that way for us. And her view, primacy of existence, aims to be sort of the very opposite of that, that things are what they are, regardless of what we or any other conscious being want them to be. So one of the themes of your article, and certainly one of the themes of Ayn Rand's work, is that these very abstract, very fundamental ideas have a real impact on our lives. And I think this will probably come up as we talk about it, but can you say just at a high level some of the, why different views on the primacy of existence or the primacy of consciousness, how they could actually affect a person's choices and actions? Yeah, sure. Um, so let's take a really... Um, simple example, uh, if you think, let's say you have been reading everything on um, Oprah's book list and you've been convinced of this thing, The Secret, the idea of which is that if you send positive thoughts out into the universe, they somehow have some magic quantum blah, blah, blah uh, power. Uh, mumbo-jumbo-mumbo-jumbo, and they actually bring into reality the thing that you visualize. Well, that's really primacy 
of consciousness in a very, very crude fashion. The idea is if you want something enough, if you think it'll be the case, it will be the case. And people who do this spend, rather than actively trying to think about what would they really need to do to achieve these goals, or are these goals realistic in the first place or worthwhile, instead, fantasy takes over and they become passive. They don't actually do things that they would need to do to bring these things about. Similarly, uh, if you have someone very religious and they refer sort of everything that happens in their life or, or the lives around them to the will of God, then the result is a kind of misinterpretation of, of facts and a misallocation of priorities and a and uh, the wrong kind of or the lack of initiative to take the positive actions that one needs to take. So rather than actually trying to figure out how do I grow the crops, I spend more time trying to sacrifice to the gods of the harvest, hoping that if I make them happy with me, I convince them, I persuade them, they'll give me what I want. So in a way, all kinds of magical thinking or just wish fulfillment um, where you hope that because you want it or because you can convince some more powerful being to want it, it will magically become so. Those are all the result of a kind of primacy of consciousness. Now, if you want, let me give you the opposite kind of orientation. Um, and here on um, primacy of existence, you might say, well, I really want to um, get into this college. Well, you don't just kind of pray every night hoping that because you want it bad enough and because maybe God hears you or because, I don't know, something um, will happen. You investigate, well, how can I get in? What would I need to do? Then you would perhaps take the proactive steps. So that's just one of an almost infinite amount of, of ways in which say, primacy of existence versus primacy of consciousness um, could come up in, in your life. I think the way that it most directly comes up for people's psychology and behavior is whether they're sort of oriented into wishing versus oriented into figuring out what they need to do and, and doing it. Now, you know, if primacy of consciousness were true, then wishing and praying may be kind of the path to success. What is Ayn Rand's argument or validation of the primacy of existence? Okay, good. So the primacy of existence is, as I said, it's this basic orientation. It's also her name for basically just the core of her metaphysical system. So the primacy of existence, what it does, or one way to think about it, is it links together or it sums up uh, several uh, points that she calls metaphysical axioms. So the primacy of existence is really what you get when you put together, um, along with a couple other things, uh, her three uh, basic metaphysical axioms, the axiom of existence, the axiom of identity, and the axiom of consciousness. Now, these are axioms, and axioms in, in a given system are what you don't prove, but what you need to use in order to prove anything else. And according to Rand, the axioms of metaphysics, 
which is the sort of most basic branch of knowledge, are are axioms with respect to all knowledge. In other words, you might say that geometry assumes certain axioms there, but some more basic thing actually says, so, you know, it assumes that there are points or assumes that there are lines. But maybe in some more basic domain, you could say, here's why we think there are such things as lines. Um, but in metaphysics, the axioms are the rock bottom of all knowledge. In other words, these are things that, not that you just assume arbitrarily, but these are things that no other branch of knowledge can prove. So how do we know that they're true? Are they just acts of faith? Well, no. As Rand sees it, the axioms of metaphysics are self-evident truths. And by self-evident, what she, she frequently will qualify that as perceptually self-evident. So these aren't things where you look inside deep down and try to find these truths that you know couldn't be deniable or, or that God lets the light of reason illuminate as, as Descartes would see it. These are things that just by looking out at the world, you can just see are true. And what and so there are very sort of special and very small sort of class of, of statements dealing with very, very special concepts, axiomatic concepts. And what's unique about these concepts is, among other things, they're ubiquitous, so they apply to everything. And they're completely fundamental or primary, meaning you can't analyze them or break them down into something more simple. They just, you can just point to what they mean, but you can't define it. So the simplest example would just be existence. So what do we mean by existence? Well, if I tried to give you a definition of existence, I'd say, well, existence is being a body. And say, say I was a, a corporealist or materialist. So I said, what, did it, what, is, is, what is it to exist? It's to be a body. And then you could ask me, well, those bodies, do they exist or don't they exist? Are they or aren't they? Um, which is another way of saying you haven't explained existence. You've specified what things you think exist, but you're still presupposing that you know what it means for something to be. So it's not that to be doesn't mean anything, it's just that we can't break it down into simpler words. When you look out at the world, there's something rather than nothing. And that's what the axiom of existence, this the first most basic of all truths says. And, and, and though it takes a philosopher, like say Parmenides, to put it in explicit terms, Rand thinks from the first moment any conscious organism is aware, that much is sort of implicit. Here, there's something rather than nothing. Identity adds the next axiomatic concept of identity or, or the axiom A is A, adds that whatever this something is, it's something, not any other thing. So existence exists as there's something. Um, things are. Identity says things are what they are. Whatever it is that they are, it doesn't tell us what the way the world is, but it tells us that whatever way the world is, that's how it is. Or as I put it in the chapter, quoting um, the famous Bishop Butler, everything is itself and not another thing. The, the not another thing is what is a sort of way of saying the law of non-contradiction. Nothing can be A and not A at the same time in the same respect. Um, which for Rand is just sort of a reformulation of this law of identity or or axiom of identity, A is A, or everything is what it is, not, not what it is. Finally, um, 
and, and here's the thought. Everything that exists is subsumed by the concept of existence. It just refers to whatever there is, everything that there is. Part of what this concept tells us, though, is, is that what exists exists, but there's no alternative to existence. So whatever is, is, but there isn't anything that isn't. Um, similarly, identity, anything that is, is what it is. It has the sort of nature that it has and not what it doesn't have. So those are complete, those concepts apply to every single fact in the universe, past, present, or future, as Rand sees it. The last of these axiomatic concepts is consciousness. The last axiom of metaphysics is consciousness is conscious. In a sense, it's a little bit more narrow because not while everything that it, everything is and is something exists and has identity, not everything in the world is conscious. Only certain kinds of living beings have consciousness of various types. But um, everything that we're aware of, anything that we can talk about from metaphysics to gardening to roller derby is we're aware of as and through our consciousness. So it's ubiquitous in terms of everything that we can think about or the way Ram puts it in, in Atlas Shrugged, existence exists and in the act of identifying that, one sees that one is conscious of that existence. So this raises kind of a puzzle then. If she thinks that the that the primacy of existence uh, is self-evident, that all the things that make up the primacy of existence outlook, they're all self-evident, then how is it that there are many thinkers, and indeed I would say, she would say that most thinkers in the history of philosophy have been on the primacy of existence premise. How do you explain that in, in light of her view of the self-evident nature of primacy of existence? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. So let me distinguish here sort of between what is perceptually self-evident and what is automatically known and automatically maintained in knowledge. So to say that these axioms are perceptually self-evident is to say that the truth that they state, the, the, the facts that they try to encapsulate, these totally fundamental facts, are available. Um, and so existence is available to any conscious being just by looking there's something rather than nothing. Um, the ability to distinguish consciousness from existence perhaps comes later. But to say that you can see that they're true and that you have you know everything that they ever will tell you at a very basic level doesn't mean that you explicitly recognize that fact. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're consistent in applying it. So, for example, prior to, say, the Greek philosopher Parmenides, no one had an explicit concept of existence. I mean, there was the verb to be, but the idea that what was was and what wasn't wasn't was not something people were explicit about. Even once you become someone can formulate that concept of existence, it doesn't mean that you automatically maintain the perspective that fully accepting existence exists would entail. In other words, um, 
there continued to be it, it continued to be possible to think the world had a beginning perhaps that something came from nothing even though that's false and incoherent if existence exists or if everything is itself and not another thing identity well then acting as if say this current political crisis x was different from what it was not a crisis in effect you're denying the law of identity but it's not it, i but it may not be self it's hardly self evident perhaps that that x is x that this crisis is a crisis and in any case even if it is there are various reasons that we don't or various people may not want to confront reality and particularly if they don't have these axioms explicitly formulated as sort of life and thought rules rules they may be very apt to sort of veer off into unreality and sort of not think that things are exactly as they are so what i'm getting at is is this so first off um the fact that you can just see that they're true doesn't mean that anybody has them explicitly formulated if you don't have them explicitly formulated or even if some philosopher does and you don't actively try to adhere to these things you can very easily act contrary to them um either without realizing it or perhaps even realizing it but not grasping the sort of full metaphysical folly that's involved there and finally let me just add one further point when you take these axioms and put them together into the primacy of existence part of what you're saying is things are what they are um consciousness is what it is what is it it's a faculty of awareness it's not the fact maker but the fact perceiver um in 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 its best cases uh there's still uh, it, it's not easy to fully understand how existence and consciousness interact so understanding the axioms say you you would know that in some sense per- perception gives us the world and the world is the way it is but it's very you might be very easily confused about how it could be that say consciousness is conscious so for example um or that how consciousness has quote an identity that is how whatever it is whatever means by which we're aware of the world actually gives us the world that part is actually i think philosophically confusing and i think at least today most of the sort of explicit denials of a primacy of existence or most of the explicit um uh uh proponents uh, of primacy of consciousness do so on this sort of kantian basis uh or proto uh, semi kantian basis which is as the way kant saw it is we have a certain way of perceiving the world both our senses and our and our concepts and because we perceive the world in a certain form we can't know the way the world really is we just know the form in which we get it now one could hardly name a philosopher who who sort of was more um committed to the idea of it existence exists and everything is itself and not another thing than, than aristotle but aristotle thought that for example if if nous our intellect if it had a particular physical organ and it operated through that particular mechanism then it wouldn't be able to think of any object whatsoever in other words if our brain became more fiery or drier 
we would have to think about fire, and even if we wanted to be thinking about water. That, that's a crude way of putting it. But another way to put it is if consciousness has to work in some specific way, then what it's going to be presenting to us is not reality or not what we want to think about, say, but whatever it's whatever condition it's sort of in. And it's not – now, Rand has a solution to that. It's the – or an answer to that, her view is this, there's this form-object distinction, and I, I take it when you talk to somebody about the epistemology chapter, they'll get into it. But that's not obvious. That part is legitimately, I think, confusing. Um, and so – and so people legitimately, I think, get confused about this idea of, well, we see in color, dogs don't, dogs don't, is the world the same for them as for us? I, I mean, that's not, even if the truth of the basic premises that go into solving that is a perceptual self-evidency, forming the explicit concepts you need to do that and then understanding them, that's not self-evident. And finally, it's not automatic to maintain this perspective. Even the, you know, the most primacy of existence philosopher, the most sage of us, has to remind himself or herself, look, the facts are the facts I may not like, the fact that I'm getting an audit, but I'm getting it, or, or, or what have you. The, um, one of the most, I think, interesting and certainly highest cash value sections of your article deals with a distinction Einrein makes between the metaphysical and the man-made. And I think that w one of the things I've noticed that a lot of people, when they struggle with life or psychological issues, one of the recurrent themes is really being confused over what am I responsible for, what am I not responsible for. And I think Einrein thinks that this, this distinction in metaphysics gives us crucial insight into that question. So I wonder if you can comment on um, just give us a little taste of what she has in mind with that distinction. Sure. Um, so let me introduce it the way she introduces it. There's this famous um, uh, serenity prayer that people in AA and NA and so on recite, which is, God grant me uh, the wisdom to know the thing. Uh, sorry. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change those that I can and the wisdom to know the difference, more or less, those words. Now, leaving aside that God give me that part, um, there are things we, can change, we can't change or there are things that are not under our direct or immediate control. But there are things that are under our control, either immediately, we, that is you know, the way you can immediately choose to raise or lower your arm, you can immediately decide that you want to end the interview or something like that or what you want to say next other things that are in our long-term control so if i really want to lose weight i can start going to the gym and i can't instantly lose 20 pounds just because i want to but i can make the efforts and then there are other things that i probably can't change so a certain predisposition to being stocky and and not being super slim you know I won't be able to change those those genes. So, so how do you tell the what, what, how do you what's the breakdown between things we can change, things we can't? Well, as Rand sees it, the basic distinction here are between what she calls metaphysical or metaphysically given facts and man-made facts. So there are facts that just are how the world is, and 
that's just how the world is. Nobody chose it to be that way. And it just is that way. So the, the basic physical constant, say, and everything from that on, on up to, you know, weather patterns and so on. But then there are things that are under human volitional control. So whatever is the result of free will for beings that have it, like ourselves. And, the, and whatever is the result of human free will doesn't have to be the way that it is. So if you have some kind of control over your habits, then part of what we're saying is you, didn't, you don't have to be a nail biter. You you know, under, maybe there's a gene that makes you disposed to it. I, I doubt it. But, um, but if it's under your control, it doesn't have to be that way. Okay, so what's the cash payoff? How does this affect how people live? Well, trying to figure out what we have control over and what we don't is, is I think, crucial because – Let's just see what happens when it goes the other way. So suppose there are things that, are, that just are physical facts and just the way things are, and you treat them as if they're um, a choice. So if that's the case, you're going to be running headfirst into a, a brick wall of recalcitrant reality. So for example, you, can, you might say – so here's an example. Um, Keynesian econ economists are just – Lots of people throughout the political spectrum think that if consumers are confident enough about the economy, um, then suddenly the economy will pick up. Now, there's a sense in which the economy is man-made, um, but say at any given point, the um, various prices and so on, various spending patterns uh, are what they are, and just being confident that they'll improve won't make them improve. Here, Actually, maybe a better example – that's more of an example of primacy of existence and consciousness. A better example would be something like, very simply, um, you might really want um, – you, you might think, if I try hard enough, I can be anything. And if I say try hard enough, I can be an NBA player. There was never going to be – the universe was never going to be such that Jason Ryans was going to be an NBA player. That, that's <laughs> just not – that is literally metaphysically impossible – I don't have the height for it. I don't have the coordination for it. No, no matter how hard I could have worked at it, I, I am quite confident, even if I had spent every waking moment um, refining basketball skills, I still would have been mediocre as a junior high school player at best. <laughs> okay, well, so, but I could say, you know, people say anything you put your mind to. Well, no, that's not true. Not anything you put your mind to, you, you can change. Um it would be better if I accepted that I'm not really predisposed to this talent. But on the other hand, um, take somebody who does face initial, say, setbacks in a field, but maybe through prolonged effort really could improve it. Or someone, say, who has a character flaw. Um, there's what Sartre calls this, this error of uh, bad faith. Um, but in, in Rand's terms, it would be treating something that's man-made as if it were metaphysically given. So you say have a character flaw. You're always um, – you lose your temper too easily. And you might say, wow, I'm irascible or I'm hot-tempered. And you act as if that's like a natural fact, the way that you might say the Amazon is really humid and you're really hot-headed. But the thing is, is you're not hot-headed the way that the Amazon is humid. Yours is – to some extent, doesn't have to be the way it is. So if you see that, 
then you can start to make changes to yourself and you can try to figure out how to do that and, and, you, can, and you can do it. So if we think that things that are man-made are metaphysically given, we basically accept the status quo even when it's really bad. So we say, hey, you know, things have always been this way politically. How could they be different? Well, we never try to radically change anything. Or we say, These are, this is my character. This is my personality. We don't try to change ourselves. On the other hand, if we, if we think that the metaphysically given is, is man-made, we're effectively falling into primacy of consciousness in a, in a very crude way. We're, we're acting as if wanting things or wishing things or saying that we think they're some way will make them different when that can't make them different. There's a kind of, I don't know if you would call it a school of thought, but very often uh, people who are more intellectually inclined will dismiss philosophy on all sorts of grounds. But one is that, you know, philosophy was fine for the ancient Greeks, but now we have science. And so this is a big subject, but let's just scratch the surface a little bit. Um, There are people who would claim, for instance, that, you know, Ayn Rand is big on this idea of causality, that causality is a corollary of the law of identity, that things can only act according to their nature. But if we actually examine the science, we know that that's not true, that that causality does not hold up. And so my wider question is simply, um, is, is metaphysics really a science or should we discard it altogether and just look at what the science tells us about issues like existence and causality and consciousness? Great. That's something that I'm very interested in um, these days. So the, the, the short answer is, yes, metaphysics is a science. It's not a natural science. It's not an experimental science, but it's a science in the broader sense of a systematic body of knowledge. And it's a foundational science. And what I mean by that is you can't do physics without metaphysics. No physicist operates without some metaphysics, some basic view of what it, of reality, and some basic epistemology, some view about how to gain knowledge. They may not acknowledge that they have a metaphysical they have metaphysical assumptions, but that makes those assumptions in a way all the more dangerous if they're mistaken and all the more imperiled or or unsecure, insecure even if they're good. So let me give you an example of some recent debacles in in physics that even some better physicists see are the result of just not taking into account metaphysics. So uh, Lawrence Krauss, a very distinguished physicist, is in 2012, I think it is, had, had a book, um, A Universe from Nothing, or Something from Nothing, A Universe Comes to Be from Nothing. And so he claims that he's going to explain why there's something rather than nothing, which is a question that many philosophers have asked. If the primacy of existence is correct, it's a bad question to ask. It's meaningless. Um, or worse. And he goes on to say, well, here's why. Um, there's something rather than nothing. Nothing is unstable, and so it had to collapse into something. And, and here's, where, here's how things were before there was nothing. Before there was something, before there was something, there was this stuff which was nothing. Now, the stuff that there was before there was something, did that exist or didn't exist? If it didn't exist, nothing could have come from it. Nothing comes from nothing. 
that's one upshot of existence exists. And if there was something, well, things existed and he hasn't explained how something came from nothing. And none of this explains why there is something rather than nothing, nor does it tell us that that's a bad question to begin with. There's a tendency for for Krauss to dismiss him, especially to dismiss philosophy, and often for physicists to use what are basically metaphysical concepts in idiosyncratic technical ways for their physics, which in and of itself might not be so bad if it weren't for the fact that they then ignore the universal sort of metaphysical concept that they share with everybody else. In other words, if people want to talk about a vacuum in physics, and by that they mean some technical thing where there isn't a certain kind of matter, well, fine. Um, but they have to recognize that a vacuum you know, is not a void. It's not absolutely nothing at all. And no physicist will tell you that if you go out to the vacuum of space, you detect nothing. Of course, there's something there. Similarly, by causality in quantum mechanics, people mean something really rather specific. And if they say, well, that kind of causality in the ultimate theory will drop out, that doesn't mean that things act in accordance with their nature has been dismissed. That they can't dismiss. And if they were to dismiss that, they would have nothing to study. That is, if they were to say things can do any damn thing they want, well, then why would anyone ever expect an equation to, that was true yesterday to be true tomorrow? Uh, and similarly, if something could come from absolutely nothing, um, their theories would, would, wouldn't have meaning. All of a sudden, there would be things that they didn't predict and there would stop being things they predicted. So all of this is to say you can't do physics without metaphysics, including most essentially the law of non-contradiction. All of natural science um, builds off of the idea that whatever comes to be, comes to be from what already was. Things change their form, but whatever the ultimate constituents of the world are, they don't just pop in and out. Even though they might change, radically change form, thing, what is is and what isn't isn't. Nowhere isn't a place where things come from. Um, Time doesn't come from a time when there wasn't time, which is incoherent. So, yeah, so when physicists try to dispense with philosophy, they themselves end up in the worst kind of sort of speculative thinking um, and are, fall victim to bad or sloppy metaphysics. You'll never get rid of that. Now, let me just say, Rand is, I think, rightly concerned to make sure that metaphysics doesn't legislate what it shouldn't to physics. In other words, you don't want to be in the position of saying, well, because we know that what is is and what isn't isn't, we therefore know exactly what sort of is-is there are. Um, and it turns out that there have to be certain unmoved movers, because that's the only way you can ever explain motion, and pretty soon you deduce this whole cosmology. You don't want to be in that position. So metaphysics can't and shouldn't try to tell physics what sorts of things we're going to find. I think it shouldn't even try to say that when you get down to the quantum level, things have to look like entities do at, a, at, at the human level. Things may, it may be hard to distinguish actions from qualities from things at that level. And we shouldn't assume we know how it's going to look. But whatever it is, 
it'll be that and not what it isn't. And things will work in accordance with what they are. And, you know, that much has to be assumed or physics can't say anything coherent. I do have a question uh, as an aside. Um, do you think that discoveries, say, in physics can help philosophers think, well, did we really formulate the laws, uh, you know, the principles of metaphysics correctly? So if we, you know, discover something weird in physics, maybe we defined causality in in the wrong sort of way. Yeah, that's a good question. I I. I'm inclined to to say yes. So in talking about those concepts of, of metaphysics that are that are axiomatic, what's axiomatic about them is the part that's available sort of to any perceiver, and it's the part that sort of doesn't ever grow with new knowledge because there's nothing more to get about it. In other words, there's nothing more to understand about what it is to, to just exist than just seeing that there's something out there. We might learn lots about what kinds of things exist and what rules operate on them and so on, but just to be, we're not, we don't learn anything new about what that means. Um, it's just exactly what you see when there's something, anything. Um, but it's very easy to have what you might call um, frozen concepts, or it's very easy to be a little bit... Um, parochial, it's easy to think that existence means more than the very, very simple thing that it does mean. And you might think that it implies a bunch of things that ultimately it doesn't. And you might think that certain things are self-evident, which are not self-evident. So some you might sort of sneak in a bunch of cosmological or, or additional kinds of ideas um, that were never really implicit. So this comes up in my chapter. Um, there's uh, often uh, determinists think that, well, the way that causality works, the way we understand it working is one event happens and it makes another event happen. Um, and if that's always true, if that's true for all events, it's true for mental events, it's true for personal action events. So everything that we do was antecedently determined by what was before that and before that. So, you know, there's no free will. And in addition to, I just think in general, being a bad account of causation, having one event cause another event, um, the idea that cause and effect can only work in one way, because that's how physics tends to understand it to work. That's a mistake. So in one sense, um, when we look at, you know, a bowling ball that we put on an inclined plane, we know, you know, it's going to start to roll and, you know, and it's just going to do what it's going to do if we put it on that. And if we put it on a flat surface, it's just going to stay there. Um, and, you know, given one Im uh, input, there'll be probably, you know, we can predict one output. But given one input, say one set of circumstances, as it were, one situation that I, Jason Rhines, find myself in, it's not like the bowling ball where only one thing could come out of it. I directly experience myself and others directly experience themselves making choices. Now, we experience ourselves making these choices, and what a determinist wants, might want to say is, 
well, that's an illusion. It feels like you're making a choice. It feels like it, things could go either way and you make it go one way, but it didn't have to. In fact, everything was always going to happen that way. And you might say, well, why? Why? Because it has to be that way. Well, why does it have to be that way? Because they only want to accept there's one kind of causation, and that is a deterministic one, meaning one input exactly one and only one possible outcome. Now, just as that's a mistake, although I don't think it's physics that corrects that, I think it's you know introspection that shows us that there's a different kind of causation that works for agents, for, for free beings. Um, there is a way that I think perhaps quantum mechanics, though it, in many ways it's been used to make some very bad metaphysical claims, like in the Copenhagen interpretation, I think it can be a corrective. So one thing I mentioned in this chapter is that it seems at times that Rand thought or assumed, I don't know how well thought out this, this view was, that all physical entities worked in an exactly deterministic way. And what I mean is that given one set of condition, you know, given physical thing in a given situation, there was only, there was one and only one thing it could do. And the only non-deterministic by which all I mean is more than one outcome could happen. The only non-deterministic kinds of outcomes that, that she thought there were was in the case of free will. Now, I happen to think that there's nothing about her metaphysics or her principle or the law of identity that implies that physical entities must be deterministic in that way. I think she did think that. I'm not sure if she really reflected on why and if that had to be. And and one reason I think – and I don't know. Nobody knows how to really understand what the math of quantum mechanics is telling us. But suppose you know we get down to the littlest stuff we can identify. And when we get down to that stuff, when it's in a given state, it does one of two things. And we don't know which – we know the probabilities it will do one or the other. But there's just no way for us to go further down to say why it does one rather than the other. And so we end up with a law that says if you have, you know, little stuff A in position P under condition C, it will either do one thing or the second thing. It won't do this other third thing. It won't turn into a pink elephant. It won't moonwalk. It'll either go left or it'll go right. But one of the two. Now, whether it goes left or right is not a conscious choice. There's no reason to think that thing has consciousness. But it might be that given that one position, it could go one way or the other. Identity says that things have to act in their nature and they can't do any old thing, but that they, there's one and only one thing that they can do next. I don't see that as entailed um, in, in, in her axiom. So I want to be clear that this isn't something that she said, but I think you know, reflecting on physics and reflecting on the fact that the idea that physical actions are always determinate um, I think that was, you know, that was an assumption that really started to get made in the 16th and 17th century with the rise of mechanistic philosophy. And it's worked really well, at least until you get to the quantum level, at which point it doesn't work very well. And the idea that ultimately everything looks like that, whether it be our free will, that's certainly wrong, or whether it be, you know, subatomic quantum interactions, I don't think we know that, and I don't think metaphysics tells us that per se. So there's a sense in which you might have thought that 
causation was only of two types, free will and physical types, which is always determinate. And it might be that there are some physical things that, are, that aren't free, but are not strictly one-to-one determinate, which is not to say they're totally indeterminate. It's not to say that it's any old thing. It might just be they're delimited to one or two or three possibilities. Um, I want to wrap up then by, um, so th- this, as I mentioned, is uh, your chapter. I hope I'm not, so, sorry, I'm, I hope I'm not, these answers aren't going on too long. No, 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 it's fine. I mean, there's <laughs> these are complex issues, and I don't think you can or should try to boil them down to sound bites. Um, but, so this is a chapter in the, uh, a companion to Ayn Rand. I wonder if you can say from your perspective as one of the contributors, um, just the overall value of the book and why uh, you think it is important and that people should read it? Oh, sure. Um, I think it's going to, uh, my hope is that it's going to be immensely important. L- l- let me say, it fully deserves to be, it, it, it properly is a very important work. What it is, is I think a new level of an academic scholarship of engaging with Rand's philosophy. So it's bringing Rand. Um, and her thought, her liter- both literary, philosophical, um, and her works uh, into uh, an academic form um, of citation and of description uh, that I think is also accessible, not just to experts, but to students. Um, I think it really raises the bar on, on academic RAND scholarship. Or, um, so... What I, and what I mean by raising the bar on academic, schol- on academic RAND scholarship is two things. There's been excellent scholarship, there's been some excellent scholarship on RAND from within the objectivist movement. So some of, uh, I mean, it's a work of Leonard Peikoff, most, quint- most quintessentially OPAR, also some of his lecture courses, um, some of Harry Binswanger's work, right? It's done a really good job of explaining RAND's philosophical thought, but it was for by objectivists for objectivists, it wasn't meant to be communicating with the academic community. And in some cases, it wasn't even primarily meant to be communicating to, say, an undergraduate sophomore philosophy major. On the other hand, you have had work on RAND, not a lot, some um, that was meant for an academic audience. It's Sadly, it's tended to be a very low-quality um, I think either just the th- the thought being, well, you know, anything on Rand is something, um, or uh, or nobody wanted to engage too closely with her. That would al- lie them too much. So in a way, not having it be good cup scholarship sort of gave you an out. Um, I, I don't know if that's really plausible. But in the last couple of years, there've begun to be some really high quality serious scholarship some of the books that Robert Mayhew has edited some of Tara Smith's books and so on um, that are I mean that are really you know academically rigorous and the companion is the first really academically rigorous um, work that covers all of her works um, and my now that's how it that's what it is whether it will fully, whether it will, all of its promise will be realized is another question. That is, this could be, 
and ought to be the foundation of a growing field of really quality um, RAND scholarship that takes her seriously as a thinker, whether it agrees with her or not, takes her seriously, really tries to understand her positions. This is a resource that would that would allow those who wanted to know more about her, critics who wanted to be fair, um, uh, well-wishers, adherent, uh, the whole gamut, to really get a good foundation and to know where to look for further information that's really reliable and really detailed and really knowledgeable. Um, now, maybe nobody will do anything with it. And that would be a tremendous shame because now there really is something to, to cite and to work from. That's my, my hope. It certainly deserves to be that. It's certainly good enough to be that. And I really credit the late Alan Godhub and then especially Greg Salmieri took over the project for really delivering, I think, what's a first-rate um, uh, c- companion. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I, I would add that, you know, just a, as an objectivist, I, if I had had this when I was, you know, first starting to study the philosophy, I feel like I could have shaved several years of confusions uh, off. I, I think it's a tremendous achievement. And I, I've, I've said this to you online, but I, I think it's worth repeating. This article on metaphysics, which is what was so striking about it, is the fact that it, it not only put the pieces together really well and addressed a lot of confusions that I, I certainly had, but because it is so focused on the importance of these ideas for actually living your life, uh, it's very valuable. And certainly that was always Ayn Rand's focus, not just quibbling over ideas for the sake of ideas, but why does this matter for your life? And so I want to congratulate you on really bringing that to the fore uh, I, I haven't seen that kind of thing done uh, as often as I would like. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, I'm, I'm gratified that, that you thought it, it came through like that. Um, there are some approaches to metaphysics that closely tie it to practical issues, certain kinds of pragmatism, certain kinds of existentialism. The problem is that um, they end up saying that it's just whatever works that is the metaphysics or they end up saying that it's just the con- it's just the conditions of human existence which defines metaphysics when in fact metaphysics at least the core of it is is impersonal it's about reality as such even without us not the consciousness part or the free will part but the rest of it so um so to have something that could be applicable to your life um, without becoming subjective or um, or too subject dependent or or purpose dependent but not fixed, that's I think something rather unique about Rand's approach to metaphysics, um, which in itself I think is just interesting and, and worth. Um, people's time if, if they're curious about what applied metaphysics that wasn't just pragmatist or existentialist might look like um, I think she would be a, a, a very good place to, to start or to, worth considering my guest today has been Jason Rines thanks very much for having me Don you've been listening to New Ideal a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute if you like what you hear Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.